ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today it's lovely to have Dr Cathy Stevenson back on the podcast with me. Today we are discussing menstrual periods in young people, how to reduce the impact. Cathy is a part-time GP at Maori Ora at Victoria University in Wellington. She is a passionate health educationalist. She works for many years at the local sexual assault service and more recently Cathy is a clinical lead on the GPEC program at the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. Hi Cathy and welcome to the podcast. Hi Louise, kia ora and thank you and the Goodfellow team so much for having me back. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. So Cathy we're talking about periods. The onset of periods is a very normal bodily function but can cause great distress for some young people. How many people have difficulties with their periods and what are the most common presentations to general practice, Cathy? Great question, Louise. And firstly, yeah, just recognising the fact that you're talking about young people as opposed to young women, which I think is really important because when we're talking about issues with periods and the impact it has on people's lives, obviously we're not just talking about young women, but we're also including, you know, trans boys, trans men, and those people that um, identify as gender diverse. And often, actually, they will have significant impacts from their periods, sometimes far beyond that of their periods, actually. Now, it's hard in terms of the general population to really understand how many young people are impacted by this. And of course, for lots of them, their periods and the onset of their periods is going to be a really positive time in their life. But we do know that between one in four and one in five will report either you know, really significantly heavy bleeding or significant pain with their cycles that's impacting on their life and their well-being. We also sadly know that about one in 10 in New Zealand will experience significant period poverty. And that's really a phrase used to describe when a young person can't afford the period products they need to manage their bleeding. And of that one in 10, a significant number, particularly in lower decile schools, and in Māori and Pacific communities, we'll actually be missing at least one day of school a month. So that's a, that's a massive issue in terms of education, engagement with life and other activities as well that those young people are missing out on. So yeah, significantly impacting for you know, a reasonably high proportion of our young people in Aotearoa. Cathy, it's always important to clarify why a young person is presenting and why they're presenting now. It's important to ensure that they have adequate Uh, space to discuss their concerns. So when you're talking to a young person about their periods, what sort of things do you need to know about? I think the first thing is to, to ask and to clarify why they've come in. The most common thing that young people will be concerned about and will impact on them is the irregularity of their cycle. And in those first years after menarche, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access is actually relatively immature. So it's really, really normal to have these long anovulatory cycles where young people can have, you know, sometimes up to 90 days or even longer between periods and then get a very prolonged and heavy bleed, which is really sometimes quite awful for them, actually. So that can be one of the things they present with. Young people will often present with painful periods. And interestingly, after menarche, those anovulatory cycles are often not as painful. But in the years after that, when the increase in prostaglandin levels happens, that's when the pain tends to kick in. So you sometimes see this pattern of very heavy, irregular periods in the first year or two after menarche, and then switching into more regular, but more painful in the kind of third and fourth years after menarche. 
So figuring out, you know, is it pain? Is it irregularity? Is it heavy bleeding? Are their cycles regular? Not particularly painful, but are they really prolonged and losing a significant amount of blood loss? The other things that young people will come in with, you know, sometimes worrying about PMS and those emotional symptoms that can accompany the cycle for some young people. As we mentioned, period poverty can be a really important issue for young people in terms of removing their ability to engage with education, other activities and life in general. And the last thing I think to clarify when a young person comes in is, is this someone who may be experiencing period dysphoria? Now, this is a phrase we use to describe the mental distress or emotional distress that is associated for either gender diverse, non-binary or trans young people when they get their period. And that can be a level of distress that occurs even when periods are quite, you know, putting inverted commas, normal. So periods that might be regular, light and not painful can be hugely distressing for someone who identifies as gender diverse or non-binary or trans. So I think clarifying, first of all, when they say they've got something to talk about with their periods, you know, exactly what is it? You know, what is going on for them? And then obviously moving on to taking a really good history. Now, as with the, you know, the principles of engaging with young people, whatever the issue is, the first thing around privacy is really, really important. It's unlikely that a young person is going to come in accompanied by a parent or another adult in their lives and feel comfortable having this kind of broad conversation with you. So, you know, standard approach for me when I see a young person, if they've got a parent or somebody with them, is to say, hey, look, what we do here in this clinic is that we make sure we have time with every young person on their own. So if mum, dad, or whoever it is wants to come in, that's fine. But I will actually put that up front and ask them to leave, giving me some time with the young person. And that's where you can explore the other issues that might be going on for them. So things like sex and contraception and that other stuff. You know, the fact that they've come in to talk about their periods may actually just be an easy way in for them to have those slightly trickier conversations that they may well not want to have in front of an adult. I think the other thing to talk about, as we would with all our consultations with young people, is confidentiality. And put this up front, you really need to stress with a young person, this is a conversation between you and I. I work within the bounds of confidentiality. I won't go outside and tell mum and dad. They won't have access to this unless you want them to. But, you know, on occasion, I may need to tell someone else or bring them into the conversation if I'm worried about your safety or somebody else's safety. And if I'm going to do that, I'll let you know about it first. And once you've put that out there, I think, you know, you'll often sense this kind of ease in the room around, okay, I can now talk openly and honestly with this GP. So I think those are the kind of principles to get out there up front. Wonderful, Kathy. Thinking about other things that we're going to ask about, you touched on sexual health. It's a good opportunity, obviously, to talk to a young person about sexual health, but what sorts of things are you wanting to know about and why? Firstly, we want to make sure that if they're worried about their periods and they've got something unusual like heavy bleeding or they haven't had a period for ages or they've got spotting or they've got bleeding after sex, is that due to something like pregnancy or an STI? So we actually need to know if that's a risk. So whenever I'm having a conversation about periods with a young person, I would always ask, you know, have you ever had sex? Are you sexually active now? Have you ever been sexually active? Have you had a sexual partner? You know, and, and use their words around that. You know, So talk about sex rather than sexual activity or sexual intercourse if you feel comfortable doing that. And if you know that they are having sex or have had sex before, really important that you know, do they regularly use condoms or were they using condoms at that time? 
you know, have they got a good, reliable contraceptive on board? And are there any other symptoms that would be ringing alarm bells for you around something like pregnancy or an STI that hasn't previously been diagnosed? So I think it's really important to know about it in terms of diagnosing what's going on. You know, what is this bleeding that they're talking about or the pain that they're talking about? Could it be an undiagnosed miscarriage? Could it be an undiagnosed STI? Could it be something else related to sexual activity? But it's also important to know about sexual activity because in terms of your management, if this is someone that is sexually active and is having sex regularly or has in the past, really, really great opportunity to use a contraceptive alongside whatever you're going to do to manage their periods. And, you know, that may be more important when we're seeing this older sort of cohort, but certainly important to have that conversation with with anyone that you're seeing who is menstruating. You mentioned blood loss. So it's always a tricky one to quantify. So do you have any tips or tricks to discuss this with a young person? Yes, it's really difficult. And It's so interesting when some people describe their periods as heavy and others describe them as light. And when you drill down into that a little bit more, actually, they probably don't meet the definition of either a light or a heavy period that we might consider in kind of medical terms. So just asking really straightforward things like, firstly, how many days do you bleed for? You know, if they're getting, you know, reasonably significant bleeding for seven days, it's highly likely that they are going to be anemic and iron deficient. And understanding that, correcting the iron deficiency, and if necessary, doing blood counts and things to make sure it's not a level that's really potentially dangerous, is going to make them feel a whole lot better. So how many days do they bleed for? How heavy is the bleeding? And you can certainly ask about clots, but I think you need to be quite specific. I've certainly said to young people before, um, have you had blood clots? And they've said, oh, yes, I get them all the time. And when you ask how big they are, they're about the size of the top of the pen or something. So not particularly significant. But a blood clot that is, you know, a 10 to 20 cent piece size, if they're getting those reasonably regularly, it's likely they're losing a significant amount of blood. The other way to look at blood loss is in terms of their period products. So how often do they have to change a pad or a tampon or their cup? Do they have to use super tampons or super pads to keep the blood flow in so that they can actually sit through a lesson at school? So we would consider if you're changing your period product, more often than kind of two to three hourly, that that's probably at the heavy end of the spectrum. And if you're flooding through your period product at night and you're getting flooding through your jammies and things like that, then again, you're likely to be losing a significant amount of blood loss. So although the medical definition, I think, is something like over 70 to 80 mils, it's impossible to know what that looks like. So I think asking those practical questions about flooding, clots, number of days and how often they have to change their period products gives you a far, far better idea. I think you also need to ask specifically about symptoms of anemia. So, you know, dizziness, pallor, tiredness, headaches, those sorts of things. If someone is symptomatic with anemia, you know, they've probably had significant blood loss for quite some time. And it's really important that you correct that. Very, very rarely in young people, the blood loss will be so severe that they are actually at risk of cardiovascular collapse. And it's really important you manage that promptly and effectively. I wonder if we can touch on pain, because again, pain means different things to different people. What sort of things do you need to know in the history about the pain related to periods? So the first thing I would usually ask is how bad is it? And, you know, it's quite nice to just get them to give you a little idea on a scale. So I would sometimes just do a, okay, zero to five. If five's the worst pain you could ever imagine, 
zero is no pain at all. What's it like on most days that you get pain with your period? And it's quite nice to give you an idea of even if the night's like, oh, it's really, really awful. And then you put it on a scale like that and they score it as a two, that actually it's probably reasonably manageable for them. But it's also nice to know that because it helps to track whatever management you put in place. So if you see them and their pain is consistently a a three and a half or a four, and then you get them on a really good regime of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and they come back a couple of months later and their pain is sitting at a one to two, actually that management's been really effective for that young person. So I do get them to score it for me and pop that in the notes. I also ask them what kind of pain it is. You know, is it that crampy womb kind of pain? Or is it a bowel pain? Is it a back pain? Is it something that's happening before their periods start? In which case you might be thinking, is this something else like a little bit of endo that's associated with their bowel? Or is it that typical dysmenorrhea that they're getting two, three, four years after menarche? So when does it occur? How bad it is? How long it lasts is important. And also how are they managing it currently? Because if you're seeing someone that's already maxing out on pain relief, is having days off school, is using hot water bottles, you're going to need to step up in terms of your management and advice that you give them. Whereas reasonably often you'll see a young person who actually hasn't tried any of that stuff because they haven't talked to anyone about it. They haven't talked to their friends. They haven't talked to mum or dad. They don't know where to get the panadol from at home, those sorts of things. So, you know, just, just getting a gauge for how are they managing it at the moment? If they're managing it at all, is that effective? Um, And if it is effective, what might be the next thing that you can do to help them with it? Those are the kind of basic principles around the pain. Kathy, when I take a history, I always think about the family history. So what sort of things do we need to know about in terms of family history and why are they important? Well, I think you always be thinking in terms of family history. Again, is there something underlying this person's period problems? So if they've got prolonged heavy bleeding, it's really important to check in about either did mum or their sisters have similar things? Could this be either a known bleeding disorder like von Willebrand's or possibly a bleeding disorder that hasn't been diagnosed as yet? And this could be the first time it's come to anyone's attention. So figuring out, you know, is there anything known in the family history in terms of bleeding disorders, endometriosis, polycystic ovaries, all of those things have a familial element to them. If there is having that at the back of your mind when you're thinking through what's going on for this young person, but also period things tend to run in family lines, even if there's not a disorder there. So actually, if mum had reasonably early menarche and reasonably difficult periods for the first few years, it's quite likely that this young person and any female siblings might be as well. So just knowing from that point of view is really important in terms of family history. If there is a family history of either heavy bleeding or pain or polycystic ovaries or a known bleeding disorder, you do need to think a little bit differently about your investigations and probably have a lower threshold for things like imaging, blood tests, and even potentially a genital examination, which is not something we would generally do in a young person with a period disorder that certainly that you're seeing for the first time. So Kathy, we can get lots of clues from how the periods are impacting on a woman's life. So what sort of questions do you ask when you're thinking about impact? thing I would say is, you know, why have you decided to come and talk to me about this? Because taking that step for a young person is actually really quite significant. So unless you have proactively asked them about their periods as part of another broader conversation, so I will often bring this into a heads assessment, for example, with a young person, but if they've actually come in and made the appointment because they want to talk about their periods, then clearly it is impacting them in some way. 
So firstly, I will ask them, you know, what is it? How does this affect you? And why, why have you come to chat to me today? Secondly, I ask specifically about things like school, you know, so how does it affect you at school? Are you able to go to school every day? If not, how much school are you missing? We know that in lower decile schools, we talked about the period poverty, but around 14% of young people in low decile schools who have periods miss more than one day a month because of their periods, which is a staggering impact actually on education. That's building up over four or five years of their high school years and that intermediate time as well. So how does it impact them at school? You know, are they able to go to school? Are they able to sit through lessons? When they're at school, can they participate in everything that they want to? So can they participate in school sports? Can they participate in the swimming activities? Can they participate in dance and drama? Or are they worried that the amount of bleeding they got means they're going to leak or it's going to be visible or they're going to feel really shamed in front of their friends? So talking about the impact at school is important. I think talking about the impact in their wider life. So is this impacting on their ability to do activities at the weekend or after school? So things like dance, drama, swimming, sports, all of those things which are incredibly difficult if you've got either very painful periods or very heavy prolonged periods. And as we mentioned in that anovulatory time, sometimes these bleeds will go on for weeks and weeks. And then, yes, they won't get another one for three months, but they don't know when that's going to fall. So if they're a reasonably high level swimmer and they've got swim galas over those months coming up, they're often going to pull out of those swim teams because they simply cannot commit. And they're so fearful that it's going to fall at a time when they've got something like that on, that they're actually going to pull out of that activity completely. So thinking through how is this affecting them, the things they love doing and their education, and then how is it impacting their well-being? And I think from a well-being perspective, that is particularly important when we're thinking about that trans gender diverse group of young people. And as I mentioned, you know, their periods may be what we would consider as completely normal. They might be light, they might be regular, but the distress can be significant enough that it can lead them to wanting to take their own lives. And I have definitely had conversations with young people where it has been the most overwhelming impact for them. And managing that distress is the most important thing as a GP you can do at that moment, actually. So I think, you know, really exploring how does it impact on school, on activities, on well-being? And then lastly, of course, how does it impact on relationships? You know, is this something that they are able to share with their friends, with a partner, a boyfriend or girlfriend, if they've got one, with mum and dad? You know, do they get support so that when they're feeling low, tired, painful, avoiding school, they've actually got people in their corner to support them and make it feel a little bit better for them. So I think looking at all of those impacts it can have on young people is certainly quite affirming for them and can validate actually why they do feel so awful for so much of their life at that point, but also enables you to manage it effectively and appropriately. Yeah, some great points here. Thank you, Kathy. So just thinking now, um, GPs like red flags, with young people in their periods, what red flags are we looking for and how would we exclude them? We've touched on on some of these a wee bit, Louise, but I think the red flags really, if someone's coming in to talk about their periods, are, are we missing something else that is going on here? Because actually period disorders are usually relatively simple to manage, but if we're missing an underlying condition or something that the young person isn't telling us, that's actually going to be far more important to tease out and come to grips with at that consultation. So the things I would be thinking about were, you know, is there any chance of pregnancy or STI? Now, a good history, particularly focusing on the sexual health aspect, is going to tell you that. 
And then you're going to be able to do a pregnancy test, ask if they want to do some self-swabs or any other investigation that they may need in that space. Eating disorders is another thing. You know, if someone's coming in saying, I'm not bleeding for months and months, don't assume that that is just an ovulatory cycles. I think it's really important that you do gently inquire around their eating habits, that if they're happy to be weighed, that you weigh them. You know, eating disorders are incredibly common, as we know, in both young men and young women. So really important that we've got that, you know, in the back of our minds and we're looking out for any red flags in terms of their eating habits and also their ideas around food and nutrition and exercise. Other underlying conditions. So we talked a little bit about pain, um, but really significant pain that you can't get on top of, pain with sex, pain with bowel motions, pain that's happening before the period starts. That might be a red flag for me in terms of endometriosis, particularly if there's a family history of endometriosis. Now, endo will typically come on a little bit of time after menarche, so it's often not there right from the beginning, but it can be for some young people. And certainly the sooner that it's diagnosed and the sooner it's managed, the less impacting that will be in that young person's future. Undisclosed gender dysphoria. So if someone appears to be very distressed by their periods, even though on questioning their periods seem quite normal, I would be gently exploring why that feels so distressing for them. Is this somebody that is struggling with their gender identity and needs support from an experienced counsellor to explore that a little bit further? And while that's happening, really important if you can, you render them amenorrheic so that you're minimising that distress at the same time. And the other thing I think that I would be really conscious of in terms of you know, missing something significant would be the potential for sexual abuse or assault. Is this a young person that is coming to you with something they feel it's okay to talk about and actually has a history of trauma that they haven't disclosed and this may be a way in for them? So again, gently, routinely inquiring, making sure that on their own and they've got a really private space to do that about a history of trauma is really, really important. And they may well want to have that conversation, you know, as long as you're going to manage anything that's going on with their periods as well, it may be something that will hugely relieve their distress for them. So, Kathy, assuming we don't have any red flags and our diagnosis is heavy menstrual bleeding, what's your approach? Obviously, it depends on a young person's preference. And with that, we would consider different categories of medications. So I wonder if we could start with analgesia and non-steroidals. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the most important things to manage. You know, as well as I do, Louise, if you're in pain, it's incredibly hard to feel happy, to concentrate on what you need to do, to participate in everything that you want to do. So I think managing pain and not underestimating the impact of painful periods for young people is, is really, really important. So I certainly acknowledge that. And, you know, often we'll say, gosh, that's awful. You know, that must be really impacting for you. We can certainly help you with that. So find out what they're taking to start with. In my experience, lots of young people will be taking something like Nurofen or ibuprofen, which they've got over the counter or Panadol, but often won't be taking it in the most effective way. So I usually say to them, okay, so you're taking that. When do you start taking it? How often do you take it? And how many do you take? Because we know that the sooner you start taking an anti-inflammatory, so either as soon as you know your period's coming or as soon as you get that first bit of bleeding and taking it regularly for the first three to five days at maximum dose, the better control you're going to get, A, of your pain, but actually also of reducing that blood flow. So you can quite effectively get around 25% reduction in blood flow if you're using an anti-inflammatory really, really regularly. 
So I would usually say to them, okay, we're going to make your little chart here. And it doesn't really matter what the anti-inflammatory is, to be honest. They're all pretty effective. But for example, say it was ibuprofen, I'd be saying, I want you to take two from the minute either you know your period's going to start or you get that first bit of blood. And then every eight hours, I want you to set an alarm on your phone. Clearly don't do it so that they're waking up at night. And you take the next two. And it would be amazing, you know, if you see them do that for the first three or five days of their period, a lot of them will get a massive benefit having previously thought that the ibuprofen wasn't helping them. So I think it's it's largely around education around how they're using their NSAID rather than switching to a different type of NSAID. So maximizing the dose, making sure they're taking it regularly and getting it in the system as early on as you can in their menses is really important. And obviously you can add things like Panadol alongside if you need to. It's pretty rare that someone would require anything stronger than Panadol and a regular anti-inflammatory. And if they did, rather than going down the sort of codeine opioid route, I would be looking at then adding in another management for their period rather than increasing the strengths of the analgesia. So, Kathy, what would your next step be? We'd be really guided by the young person and where they're at in their life. If they are not wanting or hormonal medication and they're not wanting contraception, so they haven't been and aren't intending to be sexually active, then I would definitely talk to them about tranexamic acid. Now, it's an antifibrinolytic and it will reduce blood flow by between 25 and 50%, depending on the individual. It's best used between day one and day five of the period, and it should be given regularly. So in young people, I would be recommending up to a gram TDS. I'd give a slightly lower dose if they're on the light side because it is weight dependent in a young person. And again, they've got to be really regular about taking it to get that benefit. So I would be suggesting that if they didn't want a hormonal and they didn't want contraceptive. If they did want hormonal treatment, again, it would really depend whether they wanted contraception or not. If they didn't, I would be talking to them about a progestogen. And there's a couple of different ways these can be used. So if you're looking at very quickly stopping a heavy bleed, but not getting rid of periods completely, so a sort of short-term use, you can prescribe either norethisterone or Provera three times a day for about 10 days. The dose for norethisterone is around about 10 milligrams and the dose for the medroxyprogesterone acetate is around about 20 milligrams if they use like that. And they're three times a day for 10 days. And then the really important thing is that you wean off over a week or two and reduce that dose down gradually. Otherwise, you'll get a big withdrawal bleed, which can be just as distressing for them. So that's kind of using it for the acute situation. If you want to use it long-term, and we will often do this for people who have that period dysphoria, um, you can use it at half that dose. So either five or 10 milligrams, depending which one you're using, and you can use that continuously. And it's a really good period suppressant. And often um, they won't get breakthrough bleeding with that, except if they forget to take a tablet for a day or two. So it can be used like that continuously quite safely. Obviously, in the longer term, you need to be worrying about things like bone density. But as a kind of intermediate term, you know, for several months in a row, it's quite safe and really effective to use it like that. The other option, obviously, is if you've got on top of their bleeding acutely by one of those oral progestogens, is then adding in Provera injection on top. Because by the time you're weaning off those oral ones, the depo Provera injection might be, um, you know, effective and that gives them really good cover for three months. So that's another option to think about with young people as well. Now, for those that do want contraception, obviously, you know, there's the combined pill or the progesterone-only pill. 
And interestingly, I was looking at the Australian guidelines the other day for the combined pill in these situations, and they seem to use it in the acute situation three times a day for the first 48 hours and then going down to BD for the next 72 hours and then putting them onto one COCP tablet a day continuously after that. And that seems to get a sort of bit of a fast track into managing that bleeding. Now, I haven't used it like that, but that's certainly the Australian guidelines. So I'm going to do a bit more research and I may may start using it like that. But certainly the combined pill can be a really great option if the young person is keen for that, is going to be pretty reliable about taking it and doesn't have any contraindications. So no migraine with aura or focal migraines or anything like that. So that's one to think about. In my experience, um, depending on the young person, lots of them will not want to take something every day or will admit that they're not likely to remember it every day. And of course, the problem is if they forget two or three days, they're likely to get the bleeding back, which is what's distressing them in the first place. So I will often encourage them to think about a longer term option in terms of managing their bleeding. The obvious one and the one that we really should be thinking about with all our young people is the marina. And it's just, it's so effective. It's so safe. It works so well. And there really are almost no contraindications to it. Um, that even in young people who have never had sex, we're, we're now fitting and inserting these and getting really, really great results. So I would certainly be talking to them about that as well. Now, for a young person, there's a little bit more thought and planning, I think, that goes into something like a marina. So you need to think of those shorter term options up front. So the oral progestogens, the combined pill, tranexamic acid and NSAIDs, and then be planning something longer term like a marina over the subsequent months. And really, really important, whatever management option you put in place, that you bring them back in. You know, So I will always diary a month or two down the track to say, hey, I'm going to give you a quick phone call, make sure the first month went okay, and I want to see you after you've had two or three cycles so we can see what difference this has made and make sure you're okay. And I think the last thing in terms of management is just making sure you prescribe iron because lots and lots of these young people with those long, long cycles or really heavy cycles will either be truly iron deficient or on the borderline and topping up those iron levels are going to make them feel a whole lot better. Just touching on the combined oral contraceptive pill, Kathy. This should be taken continuously. This is the way that we should be recommending it now. Can you just comment on that? Because it hasn't always been the way. Absolutely. And I think particularly when you're seeing a young person who has got issues around their bleeding, and especially if it's making them anemic, which is you know clinically significant, um, we can easily and safely remove that for them. There's no reason to have breaks from that continuous cycling like we used to suggest. It's safe to use long-term. And certainly that's the recommendation that I give lots of the young people I work with. I think there is this slight fear and anxiety often among the parents. You know, gosh, we used to be told that it was really important to have periods. Um, but I think we can be really reassuring in that space now that it is safe, it is effective. And it's going to mean they can fully engage in all of those things they've been missing out on. They're not going to have that risk of iron deficiency. They're not going to spend days feeling rubbish every month or every two or three months. It's going to make their life feel a whole lot easier if they are a young person that's got particularly bad periods. It's also going to be really effective for contraception if they use it properly. And Kathy, to conclude our podcast today, just some take-home messages for our listeners, please. Firstly, I think don't underestimate the impact that awful periods can have on a young person's well-being. You know, it can be really impacting, and I think it's important that as GPs we take that really seriously and act on it. Usually, a thorough history will give you most of the information you need to make a diagnosis. It's pretty rare 
to have to do imaging or a genital examination. Certainly those red plaque situations, you might need to, but in the main, a good history and some basic blood tests is going to be what you'll need to assess somebody. Young people who identify as trans or non-binary often have really severe distress associated with their periods, known as period dysphoria. And again, affirming, validating and managing this is really important. Don't forget to inquire about sex and contraceptive needs when a young person is talking to you about their periods. And that's just part of that HEADS framework for a conversation. But it may well be that they have come in to talk to you about sex and contraception and just bringing up periods is a way into that. So don't forget to inquire about that. And lastly, marinas are hugely effective at reducing heavy bleeding and pain and are safe for use in young people. So please consider talking that through with them. If you're not confident at insertions in young people or you don't do insertions in your clinic, there are plenty of people out there who do. So consider, you know, your local family planning, youth one-stop shop or other avenues to get that insertion done for a young person if that's the method they choose. Great. Thank you, Kathy. It's been a pleasure once again. If you're a New Zealand GP, please claim CPD points and you'll find a list of resources on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful day.